Hear now God's word. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Thank you, thank you. Will you pray with me as we come to consider God's Word? Our Father, we thank You for the great hope that You reveal to us in Your Word. For we live among these days that are dark days, and in this age that You say in Your Word is an evil age. And Father... We sojourn as pilgrims here in a world that is not our home, longing, as Hebrew says, for the better country. And Father, we know that we must run this race set before us with endurance until the very end. And we give you praise, Father, that you are the one that supplies us with the strength that we need to do that. That as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus... We know that He is not only the author of our faith, but its perfecter. And that You are the one feeding us and strengthening us with Your living and active Word and by Your Holy Spirit who dwells in us and unites us to Christ with every ounce of strength that we need to persevere even unto the very end, even through the greatest of tribulation. And Father, we know that this hope is laid up before us, this blessed hope of the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is for Him and towards Him that we strive. And so, Father, as we continue to study these words of His, 
this great and all-important teaching of His about the end. Would You give us wisdom? Would You give us understanding? And would You use Your Word to transform us by the renewing of our minds? Father, by Your grace, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight as we come to Your Holy Word. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope that the past several weeks have been helpful, to some degree at least, as we've been walking through Matthew chapter 24 here together and learning together what Jesus taught His disciples about the subject of the end, the end of this current age that we're living in, which is, as Paul says, an evil age characterized by spiritual darkness and by deception in this world and by all kinds of upheaval politically and socially and physically and naturally in the world around us because this world, like Paul says in Romans 8, has been subjected to decay and is under the curse of sin. And Jesus is assuring His disciples here in this chapter and also all throughout the Scriptures as, as we've been seeing and comparing Scripture to Scripture He's been saying that this dark, evil age in this world that is groaning and decaying under the weight of sin and corruption, that it will one day, when He returns, all come to an end, capital E, end, finally and fully, and that He will make all things new. And then, in the new heavens and the new earth, only righteousness will dwell. And only peace will reign forever, uninterrupted, uncorrupted. And that will be our reality as we strive in this life and as we follow Him and as we trust Him and as we walk by faith and run with endurance. So it's so vitally important for us to lay hold of these truths, to understand them, to embrace what Jesus is teaching here, for two main reasons, as we've been seeing. Jesus talks to His disciples about the end of the world, not to scare them, not to make them panic, not to freak us out. He reveals these things to us so that, first of all, we can be filled not with fear, but with hope as we labor and as we toil and as we persevere in this world that's not our home. And as we walk by faith and not by sight, and as we run with endurance and the strength that He gives, we need so much in this world that's going to be full of trials, that's going to be full of temptations, that's going to be full of tribulations. We need so much to be filled with the blessed hope of the appearing of our great Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And secondly, we need to be prepared for that coming day of His appearance. We need to be until that day standing firm, holding fast, not compromising, and remaining faithful until the very end. Growing in holiness, increasing in godliness, resisting the devil and all of his temptations and deceptions, and being faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ to the world out there because He's coming. And He's coming in judgment. And people need to know and to turn from their sin and to turn to Him 
for salvation during this day that is the favorable time. The time of grace. The time when He will never turn a single person away who comes to Him for salvation. We need to be faithful heralds of the Gospel. We need to be calling people out of darkness and into the light of His love. Calling them to turn from sin and turn to Him. All of this is why Jesus, shortly before He was to die, took the time to respond to His disciples' questions about the end in order to give them hope, and in order to prepare them to persevere, to live faithfully all the way up until the end when He comes. So as we come here today now to verses 23 through 31, that's going to be our focus. Those verses, 23 through 31 of Matthew 24, we're coming to Jesus' answer to the third of the three questions. Remember that his disciples asked him all the way back up in verse 3 at the beginning of the chapter. They had been in the temple together in Jerusalem, remember, and Jesus had told them that there was coming a day when that temple in Jerusalem would be made desolate. And that was shocking to them. It was unthinkable to them. And so they asked him, when would that happen? And they asked him, what would be the signs of his coming and of the end of this age? And so we've seen that the first thing that Jesus did in response to their questions was, in verses 4 through 8, to tell them the things that would not be signs of the end of the age and the end of the world or of his second coming. He told them, you're going to see a lot of stuff in this world that's not a sign of the end. It's just characteristic of this dark age that we're living in because the world is still groaning, manifesting all of the signs of decay that the world's been subjected to. Spiritual darkness, you're going to see deception and false teaching. You're going to see political upheaval. You're going to see wars, rumors of wars, right? Natural disasters you're going to see like earthquakes and like famines and we could add hurricanes and wildfires. You're going to see all of these things and all of them are typical characteristics of this whole age. They're not to be confused with signs that the end is upon us because if people always through the history of the church thought that every time there was a natural disaster or a war that it was the end, then everybody would always be thinking that it was the end. Because those things are always happening. And they will continue to happen. And Jesus says when you see them, don't be alarmed because the end has not yet come. Right? And then the second thing that He did in response to His disciples' questions was to answer the question, what will be the signs that the end is coming? That it's upon us? That it's imminent? And He did that in verses 9-14. through He talked about a massive increase of tribulation and false teaching leading to the global persecution of the church by not just some of the nations, but all of the nations in the world, which would lead to a massive falling away, a massive apostasy of people who called themselves Christians but didn't really have faith in Jesus in their hearts, and so they weren't willing to count the cost when the heat got turned up massively on a global scale. And so they end up rebelling against Christ. 
They end up betraying the church. They end up joining in the persecution globally against the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, when you start to see that kind of thing come, and know that the end is near. And we saw from other passages in Scripture, like Revelation and 1 John and 2 Thessalonians, that all of those things are going to happen as the result of Satan being let loose for a little while and the rise of a figure called the Antichrist. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who will take his seat in the temple, but the living temple of the New Testament. The temple of God that is the temple of the Holy Spirit that is the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. And this Antichrist will declare himself in opposition to the real Christ to be the head of Christ's church. And he'll even claim to be God. And he'll use supernatural signs and wonders to try to lead people away from the true Christ. And he'll lead that great global effort to persecute and destroy everyone who remains faithful to Christ. And it'll get really, really, really ugly and bad. But just when all hope seems to be lost, just when it seems like that these days of massive global persecution are going to result in every last true believer being exterminated, Jesus will come. He will return and defeat every last one of those enemies. And then the end will come. And then, last week, verses 15 to 22, Jesus started to tie all of this together for His disciples, showing them the connection between the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that He had told them was going to happen and the end of the world, which now is becoming clear to them would happen much, much later. There's a connection between those two, but not an immediate connection in time. It is, as Jesus says, a connection in kind. The connection is this. The temple's destruction, which would be signaled, remember, by this abomination of desolation prophesied by Daniel, fulfilled by the Roman general Titus and his soldiers in the year 70 A.D., that would be a foreshadowing of an even greater abomination, an even greater desolation of the true and ultimate temple that the church of Jesus Christ is with the rise of Antichrist. Leading to the end when Jesus would return and stop Antichrist and claim the ultimate and final victory over all rebellion and wickedness and evil and corruption in this world. So the abomination of desolation when Titus went into the temple and desecrated it in 70 A.D. was was a prototype of the coming Antichrist and the ultimate abomination that he will be when he takes his seat in the ultimate temple of God, the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and declares himself to be God and desecrates God's true and living temple defiling it with all kinds of deceptions and perversions and false teaching and persecution, trying to make it desolate of God's true people, causing the great tribulation that we learned about last week, but failing ultimately because the Son of God Himself then will immediately appear 
confront the Antichrist, confront Satan himself, confront every evildoer in the world, and bring them all to nothing, Jesus says. So all of that now that we've been learning about for the past month brings us to these verses, 23 through 31, where Jesus starts to now wrap it all up by answering the last of those three questions that the disciples asked him all the way back up in in, in verse 3, which which was, what will be the signs of your second coming, Jesus? And see, in a lot of ways now, the lights are already starting to come on for them and for us. It's already becoming clear based on what he's already taught and revealed. Because we know what to look for before he returns, right? Right? Before Jesus returns, Satan will be let loose for a little while. Before Jesus returns, Antichrist will appear. Before Jesus returns, all the nations of the world will conspire together and attack the church. Before Jesus returns, there's going to be a massive apostasy falling away as many people rebel against Christ who used to follow him or or say that they did. And immediately after that, then Jesus will return. So here in these verses now, Jesus is zooming in in time and talking about those days, those days of the Antichrist, those days of the Great Tribulation, those days of the Great Rebellion and Apostasy, which which are still in our future, see? So when Jesus says in verse 22, we looked at it last week, look at it now, when he says in verse 22, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He means those days in our future when Satan is let loose and Antichrist is on the scene and the worldwide global persecution and the apostasy and the great tribulation are in full force. Those days will be cut short by the return of Jesus for the sake of the elect. For the sake of true believers who are living in those days, who are persevering through those days, who are suffering For the sake of the bride of Christ, the bridegroom himself will return and cut off all the rebellion and cut off all of the tribulation and cut it all short and deliver his people from it. And when Jesus says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, again, he's talking about those days still in our future of the great tribulation that is yet to come when all of those things happen. Satan's unbound, Antichrist comes, great tribulation, great apostasy. Immediately after those days, Jesus will return, which is what he's describing in these verses. So let's take a look at them together as we continue to focus in on, like Paul says to Titus, the great blessed hope of the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 23, look at it. Jesus says, Then, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, don't believe Him. The word then is again anchoring these words of Jesus in these verses to that time frame of the great tribulation future still to us when Satan is let off his chain and all of that terrible stuff happens. Antichrist, national, transnational, global persecution, great apostasy. Those days, during those days, sometime in our future, Christians are going to come under globally, everywhere, even here, massive pressure 
of tribulation and temptation and persecution. And the, the ones who don't crumble under that pressure, the true faithful followers of Jesus who persevere and remain faithful and are living in those days, they're going to understand. And if we're alive during those days, we're going to understand Jesus' words that we've been studying here. We're going to know that we're in the midst of that great tribulation and we're going to know that Jesus is soon to return. Christians during those days will be expecting it and they'll be wanting it more than anything in this world because everything in this world will be miserable. They'll be hoping for Jesus' return imminently, immediately after the tribulation of those days, because that's what he says. They'll be desperate for him to return in those days. So the first thing that Jesus highlights here is this. It's that in those days, Satan and the Antichrist are going to try to take advantage of that anxious hope and expectation for the return of Jesus, and they're going to try to deceive people by pointing them to false Christs. Behold, here he is. Or there he is, hoping then that people will go after the false Christ instead of remaining faithful to the true Christ. And Jesus says, in those days when that happens, don't believe it. Don't believe anyone during those days who says that kind of thing. Because, verse 24, it's going to happen. Count on it. False Christs and false prophets, plural, will arise. More than one, multiple ones, many of them who will falsely claim either to be Christ or they will falsely claim to be a prophet of Christ. Follow me and I can take you to him. They'll try to lure people into believing them, following them. They'll even use great signs and wonders themselves. Actual supernatural miraculous things. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Even the ones chosen by God to be saved and delivered and endure until the very end. But see, it won't be possible for the elect to be led astray or to become lost. Because our God has promised to bring to completion the work that he has begun in us. Philippians chapter 1, right? And our God promises, Romans chapter 8, that nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from His love, which is ours in Jesus Christ, if we truly belong to Him. And that in Him that we are more than conquerors. And that He will come and deliver us and save us, even from the tribulation of those days. But Satan's still going to try his level best to deceive people into following after false Christs. And again, the false Christs and the false prophets and the Antichrist himself, they're going to use supernatural, miraculous signs and wonders, but they'll be empowered by Satan, not by God. Satan will be off his chain and doing everything he can to deceive all the nations. And many people will be fooled and drawn in by that because they'll be more impressed with these big displays of supernatural power than they are impressed with the Word of God which warns them against those things. The rock-solid foundation of our faith is God's inerrant 
living, active word. And the elect are going to stand on that foundation and stick to the ancient paths that we saw a couple weeks ago of God's divine truth in His word. The faith that was once and for all revealed. Stand on that no matter how bad the tribulation gets and the temptation and the deception. And you will not go astray if you stand firm on God's word. Do you remember in John chapter 10 that Jesus said that he is the good shepherd and that his true sheep know his voice and follow him and not any of the other voices in this world. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, Jesus said. I give them eternal life and they will never perish If they follow my voice, if they follow me, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Even the Antichrist, even the false Christs cannot snatch God's sheep away from Him if they keep following His voice, and His voice is His Word. When I was in Israel a number of years ago now, the group I was with touring around, we were up on a hilltop, and there was a road down below us, and we watched as two shepherds with two different flocks of sheep were walking towards each other on this road. The shepherds were in front and their flocks were behind them and they were coming towards each other on the road. And when they got close to each other, one shepherd went to this side of the road and the other shepherd went to this side of the road and then all the sheep just kind of ran into each other and got all jumbled up and mixed up. And looking down, we couldn't tell whose sheep was whose. They all looked the same. But what those shepherds did is they kept walking in their respective and opposite directions and they started calling to their sheep. And to us, it didn't sound very different. It sounded really, really similar. But I'll tell you what, those sheep knew the voice of their shepherds. And even though they were all mixed up and all jumbled up, this shepherd's sheep ended up following him. And this shepherd's sheep ended up, and they all separated themselves and went after the voice of their shepherd. One flock going one way, the other flock going the other way. Listen to me. No truly saved person will ever be deceived into following the voice of a false Christ or even the Antichrist, no matter how persuasive the false Christ or false prophet might be, because Jesus will not let His sheep go. He will not let anyone snatch them out of His hand. And his sheep are going to be the ones who do not listen to the voice of any other shepherd because no other voice sounds like Jesus' voice. No other voice gives eternal life. You remember when people were bailing on Jesus? They were walking away from him, abandoning him, and Jesus turned to the disciples and said, Are you going to leave too? And what did Peter say? Well, where would we go? Your words are the only ones that give eternal life. Where else would we go? There's only one way. True Christians always listen to the voice of Scripture over any other voice in this world, even over the the voice of, of big, impressive things like signs and wonders. Especially when we know from the very words of Jesus Himself right here in Scripture that Satan's going to use actual supernatural signs and wonders to try to deceive people. So don't be impressed with that stuff. 
but no one will be deceived who stands firm on the word of God. Because Jesus even says it explicitly here in verse 25, he's told us beforehand not to be deceived by the voice of any other shepherd, not to be fooled by someone who says, I'm able to do miraculous things. And we go, well, then that must be from God because we know it doesn't have to be from God because it can be from Satan because Jesus tells us so. So, verse 26, therefore, if anyone in those days says, look, Jesus is in the wilderness. Come with me and I'll show him to you. Don't go running out in the wilderness to see him because it's not him. He's not going to be there and whoever is there in him. If anyone says, look, he's in this secret inner room and I can teach you the secret handshake and give you the secret password or, or hand signal to get you into the secret room to see Jesus, don't believe him. Because he's told us already it won't be him. And so if we trust in his word, which never changes, we won't be fooled. And also because Jesus tells us when he does come, there ain't going to be anything secret about it, right? Jesus isn't going to just quietly show up and nobody knew it, and then he's going to be hanging out in some cave out in the desert and sending prophets out to, to tell a select number of special people who might be tempted by that kind of thing to go out and find Jesus in the cave. That's not how it's going to work. Jesus isn't going to be hiding in a secret room somewhere waiting for people who have been given the secret password to come discover him. That kind of thing is going to be tempting for people in this world because it makes them feel special. Just like supernatural signs and wonders are super tempting for people to be enticed by because, partly at least, our, our unbelieving flesh is more impressed with things that look powerful and spectacular than the things that God actually does. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians? He uses the things that the world thinks are weak in order to shame the, the people who think that they are strong. He uses the, the things that the world considers foolishness in order to put to shame the things that the world would say are wise. The Greeks look for power, the Jews look for wisdom, and God gives us a baby in a manger. A king who would be crucified on a Roman cross as our great hope. And the world says, foolishness, give us the signs, give us the wonders. Well, in our pride, we can crave secret hidden knowledge that we've been given special access to above the foolishness of the gospel and the word of God in Scripture. So be careful in this world already right now before those days. Be careful in this world, especially here in America, where we're constantly being tantalized by things that stimulate our overactive imaginations and seem really impressive to us and thrill us and entertain us and build an appetite in us for those kinds of things that we might translate into our expectations about what Jesus is going to do. Be careful not to let yourself be conditioned by things that make you feel really excited in this world so much that you become unimpressed with the simple, clear, plain truth that God has spoken and revealed in His Word. 
There's coming a day when Satan and Antichrist are going to prey on people who have been conditioned like that. And so they're, they're more captivated by signs and wonders and big impressive displays of exciting power than they are captivated by the Word of God and the gospel of a crucified Christ. And, and, and in those days, Satan will succeed, Antichrist will succeed in leading many people astray because they're not standing on God's Word. They're not confident of the Scriptures. They don't understand the Scriptures. They haven't been studying the Scriptures because they're focused on all the other stuff. And so they've been conditioned. Our, our culture does a great job conditioning us, Right? I mean, we're constantly having our eyeballs pumped full of superhero movies and imagining how awesome it would be to have these great and impressive powers that ordinarily we don't see at work in this world. People are conditioned even by, by all of the counterfeit miracles, or maybe even some of them are real, but how do you know if they're from God or Satan? And all the overemphasis of entertainment in modern churches, people are being conditioned to depend more on, to be impressed more by, to be persuaded more by the signs, the wonders, the displays of supernatural power than they are being conditioned to be dependent on and convinced of and persuaded by the ancient words and the ancient ways of the faith once delivered in the Word of God. You've got to be preparing yourself now for those days that are coming. You've got to be conditioning yourself now and protecting yourself now from being conditioned so that you're prepared when those days come. Be prepared for those deceptions. They are coming. And in some form, they're already here. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work in this age, John says. Which means we've got to be more and more immersed in the true and living word of God. Be prepared, and then when that deception comes, you won't be led astray because you'll know the voice of the Good Shepherd. You'll know not to fall for the schemes of the devil, no matter how impressive and spectacular they are, because Jesus has told us beforehand. And so we won't be fooled by anyone who says that they're Him. Or that they can take us somewhere to where He already is because we'll know that whoever it is, wherever it is, it won't be Him. And we'll know that it's one of the false Christs that He's warned us about. And then, of course, the biggest reason why we'll know that anyone who says, look, there's the Christ, why we'll know that they're lying? The biggest reason is because Jesus also tells us how to recognize Him unmistakably when He does return. And by unmistakably, I mean like nothing else in the whole universe or in all of history, unmistakably. Satan and the Antichrist are going to have supernatural signs and wonders that are going to cause people who don't understand the Scriptures and stand on the foundation of God's Word, they're going to go, well, those miracles must come from God. The one performing them must be from God, but it won't be. They're going to be satanic deceptions. But see, what is from God, what will be from God in those days, is God Himself will come in the person of Jesus in a way that makes all those signs and wonders 
spectacular as they may look on this earth, it's going to make them look like teeny tiny little, little firecrackers. Remember those, remember those strips of caps that you could put in the cap gun when you were a kid? And you'd pull the trigger and it'd go pop, pop, right? It's going to make, when Jesus comes, it's going to make the big signs and wonders of Antichrist look like one of those little caps compared to a thermonuclear bomb. Jesus being the bomb. When the Son of Man returns, all of Satan's supernatural tricks are going to look really lame as the counterfeits that they are. Because, verse 27, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, right? You can, you can be laying in the dead of the night and, and a, a lightning flash can, can strike 20 miles away and, and you'll see it for miles so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When I was younger, my dad and I were camping. We were backpacking with some friends of ours. And we had set up our camp and we knew that rain and possible thunder showers were forecast. So we covered everything up and we put tarps over our little one-man tents so that when the rain came, it wouldn't soak us. And I had just gotten into my tent in the middle of the night no moon, black as pitch outside. And I had just crawled into my sleeping bag and I'm lying on my back and I had closed my eyes and all of a sudden lightning flashed and like a second later maybe, the thunderclap, meaning it's like right over us. And even with my eyes closed, that flash of lightning like burned right through my eyelids and it was like daylight bright as the sun. There's no mistaking it, right? For a, a flashlight or a campfire or a candle. It was way too sudden. It was way too bright. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Unmistakable. You're not going to have to make pilgrimage out to the desert. You're not going to have to show the, the secret hand signal at the door of some secret room. You're not going to need to go anywhere to find Jesus because when Jesus comes, He's going to find you and everyone. Revelation 1.7 says it like this, Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Every eye on the planet's going to see Jesus when he returns with all the secrecy and subtlety of a lightning bolt. And that verse there in Revelation 1 also says that when he comes, people on the earth are going to wail on account of him. And the word wail means like you do at a funeral, mourning. Why? Well, why will that be the reaction of, of most people in the world when Jesus returns? They're not going to be thrilled at His appearance. They're going to be terrified. They're going to be distraught. Why? Because when He comes, He's coming in judgment. And all those who don't know Him have judgment coming and they know it. Because apart from Jesus, we all have judgment coming. None are righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short, eternally, infinitely short of the glory of God. 
And anyone who has not turned from their sin in repentance has not turned to Christ alone in faith alone for salvation from God's judgment is going to bear the fullness of that judgment on themselves eternally when He returns. That's what verse 28 means when Jesus says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He means that when He comes again, He's coming with his sights set on everyone who are still in their sins. Who are still spiritually dead in sins and trespasses. Who have not come to Christ. Who have not been raised to newness of life through faith in Him and been forgiven and justified and cleansed from all unrighteousness. He's coming to pour out judgment on all unrighteousness, which includes them if they've not been cleansed by Christ. And when He comes, they're going to know it. All throughout our study of this chapter, we've been looking at other scriptures, right? Other places in, in God's Word where God reveals in more and more detail more about the same things that Jesus is teaching to His disciples here. Revelation 19 is one of those places where God gives us a greatly expanded description of exactly what Jesus is talking about here in verse 28 of Matthew 24, the coming of the Son of Man in judgment against all sin in this world. Listen to Jesus' words. And they're His words, they're not my words. And they're hard words, but they're His words. John says, Then I saw heaven opened. Picture that. What does it look like when heaven is opened and Jesus appears? Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him with white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. John says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for a great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings. Captains, mighty men, horses and riders, all men, both slave and free, great and small, all those who don't know Christ and are still in their sins. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse, still shaking their fists, still raging against the Almighty. But the beast was captured. With it also the false prophet, the Antichrist, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And they were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him sitting on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's why when Jesus comes, so many people in this world are going to wail with anguish because they don't know him as their savior and they will then know him they will then know him as their ultimate enemy he's coming to make war against anyone who is still in their sins he's coming to crush all the wickedness and rebellion like grapes in a wine press to use john's own imagery He's coming with such earth-shattering power that everyone who has worshipped the creation instead of the Creator is all of a sudden going to know this is the Maker of all things. And everything in this world that they've loved, including their own lives, instead of loving Him, is about to be destroyed by Him in the fury of the wrath of the Almighty God. And then they'll know that, that that includes them. And all of that's going to happen, verse 29 here of Matthew 24 says, all of that is going to happen immediately after the tribulation of those days. Immediately, no big gap in time. Again, those days when Satan is let loose, when Antichrist appears, when all the nations begin an all-out assault on the church, and many are led astray and fall away because of the deceptions and the persecutions. So, the timing of the second coming of Jesus is clear. It's when all that tribulation is happening. It's when the earth is soaked in the blood of the martyrs in the most terrible season of tribulation the world has ever known that Christ will come. And when He does, the good news is for those who know Him, who have been known by Him, who have been saved by grace alone through faith in Him. He will gather His own to Himself. And then he will unleash, he will vent the fullness of God's judgment one final time on this world. And in verses 29 through 31, Jesus gets very specific with his disciples in terms of the answer to their question, all the way up in verse 3, about what would be the sign of his coming. Well, we know he's coming. They'll know he's coming. We'll know he's coming if we're living during those days. He's taught us that we can know what things are going to happen before He comes. And this is what it's going to look like when He comes. And this is what it's going to be like. Unmistakably, when every eye sees Him coming with the clouds. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will give none of its light. The stars will fall from the heavens. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, like we talked about. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will all gather His elect, His redeemed, His bride from the four winds from every end of heaven to the other. The sign of His coming in those days, not yet, but in those days that are still future to us, the sign of His coming while we're in the middle of that horrible tribulation will be that the 
the stellar heavens, the physical stars and galaxies, the very physical fabric of this universe, the sky that we see with our eyes above us is going to get ripped open and it's literally going to fall apart like a, like a sheet that's been torn. God, once again, gives us even more detail in other New Testament passages like 2 Peter chapter 3 where He says, This coming day of the Lord will come like a thief. And when it does, then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies, planets, stars, galaxies, nebulas, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He says it's going to come like a thief. That means it's going to come suddenly and unexpectedly for unbelievers. It won't be unexpected for you because He's told you all about it. And if you stand on the firm foundation of His Word, you'll be ready for it. You'll be expecting it. You'll be hoping for it. But if you're an unbeliever and you haven't stood on the foundation of His Word, it's going to come like a thief comes in the night when you're sleeping in your bed and you're not prepared. And Peter is saying the same exact thing that Jesus is saying, that when Christ comes, it's going to cause this massive, cosmic, catastrophic upheaval and disruption of the entire created order. One that will end up in a total and cataclysmic dissolution of the entire created order as it's all exposed to the wrath of God that Revelation 19 talks about. It'll all end up being burned up and and dissolved. And then he'll gather all of the dissolved pieces back together and make a new heavens and a new earth that are cleansed and purged of all the unrighteousness. Again, in Revelation, God gives John a vision of this same event, the coming of Christ, the catastrophic disruption of the cosmos that it causes. In Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17, when the sixth seal is opened at the end of the world. Listen, he opened the sixth seal and I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, just like Jesus says. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a strong wind. And the sky itself vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And all the kings of the earth and all the mighty ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks. And they called on the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. I mean, it's hard to even picture this, right? This coming day when we live on a ball, a globe, it's not a flat earth, everybody. The Bible doesn't teach that. We live on a globe. How is Jesus going to come from any point in space where everybody on the globe can see him all at once? Well, I don't know exactly, but look, the Bible's describing this, this coming day when there will be this thunderous sound of the trumpet of God blasting through the heavens, and, and it says the sky will be ripped open like and rolled up like a scroll, and then every eye will see Jesus. So one New Testament scholar explains it like this. He says, just like you can lay a flat map of the whole world out and see it all at one glance... 
so Christ will appear and be able to behold all humanity at one glance, and they will all be able to behold Him. You can, you can picture the sky above us like that sort of torn open, split down the middle, and, and then each end being rolled up. That's how it's described there in Revelation 6. You could think of like a, a curtain on a stage during a play, and after the play is finished, the curtain is pulled back from both sides to reveal all the actors behind. That's what seems to be being described when Jesus appears. The present reality is going to be, is going to be rolled up, peeled back, so that it disappears and reveals the heavenly dimension that's been hidden where Jesus and God dwell, and that's going to freak everybody out. Every eye will see Him. Because the present physical reality will be gone and Jesus will become visibly manifest to every eye throughout the whole earth. And He'll come here with all the saints, with all the angels of heaven in order to pour out judgment. In order to cast Satan himself and the Antichrist himself and the beast himself into that lake of fire. But His elect, His redeemed, His beloved, His bride washed whiter than snow we will all be gathered, verse 31 assures us, from the four winds wherever we are and ushered, if we're, already, if we're still alive in the world when this is happening, we'll be ushered along with all the other saints who have already died. They'll be raised bodily on that day, the Scriptures tell us. And there's going to be this great multitude from all across the world and all across history of God's redeemed people, a multitude too great to number, and we will together join our great, glorious, all-powerful, conquering King in full, final, everlasting victory over all of His enemies. And we will come together into the full and final, everlasting rest of peace and righteousness in His glorious presence for unending days, incorruptible days in the new heavens and the new earth that He's going to create in the place of this one which is burdened with sin, which is groaning with decay, and longing for this redemption that Jesus promises will come. See, that's your hope. Nothing in this world is your hope, like we said last week. That, that's your hope. No treasure that you can lay up in this world is worth anything eternally. The Lamb of God who was slain, who was raised, who lives forevermore, who is our Lord, who is our Savior, who is our God, who is the Good Shepherd, who came and sought us when we were lost and saved us, who has loved us to the uttermost because He laid down His life for us, who defeated death and who was raised and lives forevermore, who is the great I Am, who is our refuge and our shelter and our high tower and our light, and who's with us even now, in spirit and in power, will be with us physically, bodily, face to face, forever. That's our hope. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I will bow in humble adoration 
And there in His presence with Him, there proclaim, My God, how great Thou art. That's our hope. That's, that's the hope that we strive for. He's the hope that we strive for, right? And so even in this world, as bad as it is and as bad as it will get, we say, Oh Lord, haste the day when my faith will become sight and the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll and the trump will resound and the Lord will descend. And I won't tremble and I won't fear and I won't mourn because He is my God and He is my bridegroom and He loves me to the uttermost and so it will be well with my soul when He comes, right? Amen. Does your, does your soul say amen, it's well? Because of the great blessed hope of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters but being prepared for Him. So let's pray together today and then let's sing those words to Him together today. It is well with our souls. Our God and our Father, again, would you anchor our hope to your word? Would you fill our minds with your truth? Would you help us to see the great contrast of the ways of this world with the ways of the ancient paths that you have laid down for us in your living and active word? in the faith once delivered by the prophets and the apostles for the people of God who we are. And Father, would you feed us with this word and strengthen us and transform us by the renewing of our minds and help us to stand firm and to hold fast. Help us to strive in the strength that only you can give. Help us to resist the devil in all of his schemes and ways. Help us, Father, to radiate holiness even as all perversion is unleashed in this world by the devil. Help us, Father, to be the lights in the darkness that would point to Christ and salvation during this time where your favor is still upon those who will come to Christ for salvation. Father, help it to be well with our souls that Jesus is our God, that Jesus is our Savior, and that Jesus is coming again. We love you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Page 16. If you'll turn there. Let's stand together and sing this great